From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Good morning and welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, and welcome business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where all three of my favorite topics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my friend and co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, our co-host Shane Jensen, our co-host Cade Massey, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132. And, of course, the great part of Wharton Moneyball is that we're a call-in show. Very easy to do. Just call our number at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I've been tweeting a lot this week because there's a lot going on in sports. You can catch us at at WMoneyball. And you can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, the first segment, which is what we've been doing for the last five and a half years here, is what caught our eye in sports. So, first of all, Adi, how are you this morning? I'm good. And what caught my eye in sports is a great mon- a great uh, Wednesday morning wake-up. So what was the... Uh, obviously, you and I know what it is as diehard Yankee fans, but maybe there are some of our fans here in Wharton Money don't Bowl know, that don't yeah. know about the news yet. Yeah. So my son actually texted me at 12, 11 a.m. this morning. Actually, was awake, so it technically was uh, not the morning morning, but it was in, the, in this today. Garrett Cole was signed by the Yankees, nine years, $324 million, which is obviously the move that Yankee fans such as you and, and such as me have been waiting for. So obviously I knew, given it was going to be you and I today, that um, I knew that we would talk about this topic, certainly. as I, I didn't hear about it, by the way, until I came in this morning. First, let's talk about a bunch of aspects of the contract from an analytics perspective. So Garrett Cole's 29. He is. This would cover him through a season where he's 37. So let's first start with the beginning. Forget the money part for a second. Let's talk about the years. He can opt out after five years. It's a nine-year contract. How do you feel about, let's just talk about the length of the contract, given what we've spent many years here on Wharton Moneyball talking about, about injuries, about the effects of age, etc. How do you feel about the length of the contract? Okay, well, I mean, no, on a certain level, it's, the, it's a bad contract for most teams out there. But for the Yankees, it's not a bad contract. And the reason why is that money just doesn't mean the same thing to the Yankees as it does to other, other, other teams. And this is something as we as, as business school professors and economists in some in a big level have to appreciate that the do- value of a dollar is not the same to every person. It's relative. And the Yankees have much more money. And as a consequence, they can afford to toss a bit on a nine-year contract, which, as you and, and I might, might forecast and probably accurately, will not be bringing good rewards in the last half of that. Well, a couple things that's interesting. So first, just for our fans that don't know, the way that baseball works is it has a soft cap, which means you can go above the cap, which is probably going to be somewhere around $200 million. At some point, you pay an extra dollar for every dollar you exceed, and then at another point, you pay an extra $2 for every dollar you exceed. So even if this means, if you add Giancarlo Stanton's contract and you right. have all these other contracts, even if the Yankees end up paying $300 million next year in salaries, I hate to say it, but who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? And you know what what we also realize in baseball is we're getting such crowding at the top and you know catastrophe right. down at the bottom which means that wins are much more expensive at the top than they are in the middle. And as a result for the Yankees to get from an expected wins I mean I was we, I don't know if you recall in the very beginning of the season we forecasted we had an over under on the Yankees wins. It was at 95. It was 95.5 and we yeah. did it both for the Red Sox and the Yankees and and I couldn't I had to break my fanboy attitude which is of course to predict more than that because the Yankees the, the forecast for even a great team is always in the is really low the 90s. best is low 90s. Low 90s. So to 
forecast higher, and I think this Garrett Cole signing will forecast higher, is really hard to do and really expensive. And you have to think about it. The Yankees have to knock off teams like the Astros, the well, Dodgers, um, the Red Sox, uh, the, the Rays, whoever's going to be there. And the, you really need every weapon in your arsenal, particularly for those short series in, well, in that the playoffs. Was, that was what I was going to ask you about. That was going to be the next topic I was going to ask you about, which is... Um, is it like when we build mathematical models, we talk about the value of Garrett Cole, but could you tell our listeners here how you think about his value differentially given we're, at a, we're in the right tail of the distribution versus his value that might be for an average team? Let's put him on the, oh, I don't know who's an average team. Let's put him on the, the uh, Angels. Okay. Let's put him on the Angels, which is the other, one of the other teams that was considering right. him. Mm-hmm. I'm not... Well, first of all, here's an interesting question. I'm going to ask you a series of questions here. I love it. (laughs) Let's call them short answer questions. Who would he add more wins to, the Angels or the Yankees? It's an easy one, Angels. Okay. See, this is the part that most people don't get. This is why I asked you. No, by the way, you should be happy that I asked you. There are two reasons for it. Okay, Uh, go ahead. Please tell us. The first reason was the obvious reason is that the Angels don't have good pitching, and he's going to be replacing someone much more mediocre than the Yankees will be replacing him with. So whoever's going to get bumped out of the Yankees' rotation and the innings that that, that is being replaced with Garrett Cole is differentially going to be lower. So that's the obvious kind of answer for why he will bring more wins to the, uh, to the Angels. The other reason is that wins are more expensive and harder to come by at the upper end of the curve. You know, when I do my Moneyball Academy, you know, I've done this with my with my MBAs as well. One of the things that we that I plot for for the students is a graph of wins versus payroll. Now, it's actually normalized payroll so you can look over the over the the seasons, the decades and compare. But what you what's very noticeable, although it's hard to really prove statistically because the data is sort of somewhat limited, is that a logarithmic curve fits a bit better than the linear curve. So just to be clear to everyone, what Adi's talking about is what we call it's called a concave function, which means at the right tail, instead of continuing to go up linear, it starts to flatten. And that's what we see very often. Matter of fact, just so you know, um, marketing, the entire field of marketing is built on the premise of logarithmic curves. Because like, if I spend money on advertising, yeah, advertising makes you buy more product, but at some point, there's going to be diminishing marginal returns. Diminishing marginal returns. This would be a perfect time for us to have a picture. You can see Eric's hand tracing out the logarithmic curve so so elegantly. But the bottom line is that the top of the curve, to win your 101st win, is much more expensive than winning your 82nd win. Okay, so let me continue on that line of thinking. So, you know, uh, our colleague Shane Jensen, who's not here today, always talks about the baseball playoffs as being a coin flip. So let's imagine. Let's first let's just start sequentially. How much if before the Garrett Cole signing, what do you think were the chances of the Yankees making the playoffs prior to Garrett Cole signing? I'd say uh, making the playoffs for next year uh, probably in the eighty to ninety percent. Okay, and how much does Garrett Cole add to that? He probably brings that from eighty-five to from eighty to ninety to eighty-five to ninety-five. Okay, so it's not, I, well. First of all, there are it's what's very called high. ceiling effects. Yeah. I mean, one way to view it, just for our fans out here that love math like we do, um, you could say, well, that's a five percent increase. You could also view it as a thirty-three percent increase. Of course, because the chance of not making it. <laughs> well, no. Also, no, not just that, but also there's only fifteen percent to go between yeah. eighty-five yeah. and a hundred, and he's covering. He's covering a third it. of that. I, at least a third of listen, that. Listen, I don't think my students appreciate it as much as I appreciate the observations I said. But I talk about how how going from 98% of the variance explained, which we call in statistics the R-squared, to 99% might not seem like much. Oh, it's But it's huge. doubling the explanatory exactly. power. Exactly. <laughs> let's go to the next question. Yeah. So now the Yankees make the playoffs. Let's let's live in the good world of Wharton Moneyball and Yankee yes, fandom. Yes. Now, 
Let's even imagine, just to make it simple, let's imagine they make the final eight teams. So they're not the they're winning right. the wild card. They're in the final eight. Yeah. How much probability does before the Garrett Cole signing do you give them above twelve and a half percent, one out of eight? And how much do you give them now? Well, interestingly, because I think you, you, what you have a trade-off is, of, is the Jensen observation of this coin toss. It's actually not a coin toss. It's just sufficiently close to a coin toss to be really persuaded. Um, and, and, and if you look at it, there's a lot of teams that make the playoffs. And on, on average, year after year, the better teams do end up percolating and, and populating the, the World Series in the last rounds of the playoffs, the championship series, more, more frequently. But it's not that much. Um, I give the Yankees a, a bigger chance than they had before. If, it's, if, if we go with 12.5%, which is a 1 in 8, I'd say it's at least one, uh, probably 1 in 6 at this point. Well, just to give you an idea, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, uh, the Yankees opened the season, off-season, at plus 600, third in the league behind it's the Astros and Dodgers. Yep. And they're now at plus 450 co-favorites with the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. So you weren't far, I mean, you were, now, remember, you were yes, about so, in the so order the, of magnitude. The, the, the trouble, trouble, that's in, in the increase. There's trouble with those, of course, odds as you can't get, those are those are inflated by the by the VIG, or, and VIG. so you'd have to bring them down. But that, they're roughly saying if it's one, one, if you add the VIG in, it's about one in one to 500, so that's around, that's pretty much exactly, yeah, exactly what I was what saying. I, I, I'm appreciating that, thank by you. By the way, <laughs> we're gonna, you and I are going to do our over-under on the season right now. So apparently the Yankees win-loss. Over-under? Yep. Yeah. Is drum roll one hundred point five? Wow, wow! I have to tell you, as a betting, as a non-betting person looking for a bet, I'd have to take the under on that. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, that's a crazy forecast. It's a crazy. It's a forecast. crazy forecast. It's a crazy. This forecast. is a. This is a fan-driven one side. Now, I mean, let me just say, from a fan point of view, I was also starting to think as I was getting out of my car walking in today, I was starting to think. What's the Yankees' starting rotation now? And I was have to admit, I was getting excited because <laughs> I can think of the, I, there too. might even be a fifth person I'm <laughs> you not even let thinking your of. Excitement. But Cole, yeah. Severino, Paxton, and Tanaka. I mean, Tanaka is going to be your fourth, <laughs> fourth starter. starter. <laughs> Paxton, Tanaka. Yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah. saying though. I'm thinking. This is pretty good. Well, unfortunately, the reason why one hundred one point five is or one hundred point five is a crazy forecast is first of all they have great teams to play, right? And they have to beat them as well. And in fact, one of the things that I was thinking about the value of Garrett Cole's contract is it's not so much the value to the Yankees. And of course, it is it is that, but it's also keeping them away from their I opponents. Know. You couldn't let him go to a team. I mean, the Angels are trying to build up. I don't think they're quite yet at where the Yankees will be. They'll be a competitor to the Yankees, but certainly the Astros are looking at re-signing him. And absolutely, we didn't want him to go to the Red Sox. <laughs> so we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner. Some combination of us, Shane Jensen and uh, Kate Massey, are here every Wednesday morning live here, 8 to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM 132. If you want to join the conversation, if you want to tell us what you think about the Garrett Cole signing, please call us at one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So one other question I want to ask you about this is, um, do you think at the end of the day this was a good decision for the Yankees to do? Like, how much does it really raise their chances of going to the World Series and winning the World Series? I think it's a great decision. I mean, you have to recognize that a dollar just doesn't mean the same to the Yankees. I think one of the things that I think the Yankees have not done over the year, last few years is invest, seriously invest, in the in the league's and team's best the pitchers. Pitching. The league they best have pitching. not. And they let, they let Cole go, and they let they did not make bids for, for the, the trade uh, uh, ob- opportunities in the midseason last year. Well, either way, we will see how it goes, but it was certainly good news. And by the way, that followed, as you know, just two days prior 
what appeared to be a, another monumental contract, which was Steven Strausberg, for seven years at $245 million, right. and he's 31 years old. So they're comparable contracts. Actually, uh, the better way to think about um, Strausberg's contract, which was interesting, before opting out of his contract, he had four years and $100 million left. So he basically added three years at $145 million. That's a smart business. I, I, if I, I could love, add three years yep. at $145 million, I'd do that too. You know what? I love Strasburg's contract. I love that he's going to play his entire career with one team. I, I love that he w- brought them to the World Series. This is this is old style. Won baseball. the World Series. The world won the World Series, and I, I like it. I, and and uh, you remember when he first came up? The kind of you know impression he made on on the entire baseball universe. Yeah, you may remember actually a discussion we had a couple weeks ago. I think I remember. I remember you were sitting here and I asked you a question. <laughs> I read you off the statistics of a pitcher in their first five seasons. You may not remember this, and the person had a bad win loss percentage, a bad WHIP, a bad home run percentage. The only thing the pitcher was good at was a strikeout rate, and that pitcher was Garrett Cole. Yeah. So how do you feel about the fact that between ages 22 and 27, he was quite an average pitcher, if not possibly even a below average pitcher? And it's been the last three years. How confident are you? Forget age 36, 37 season. How confident are you that the next five seasons, which the Yankees cannot opt out of, he can't opt out of, that he's going to be the... You know the Garrett Cole from the Astros, or from etc. Or is he going to be the Garrett Cole from before that? That's a tough question. Um, well, that's why I mean, yeah, we're yeah, here on more Moneyball. No, I'm just saying. Let me just broaden the question. Yeah. I'm not that I want the answer to that question, but from a statistical perspective, like I mean, you could just if we didn't care about the time ordering, which we do. He's got five mediocre years. Three good years, really good years. Extraordinary. Extraordinarily years. Koufax-esque good Koufax-esque years. Koufax-esque yep. good years. Remember, we even talked about that yep, a couple last, weeks ago. Yeah, two weeks ago. And now, what do we expect? Well, obviously, I don't expect those three years again. I mean, just explain just the re- statistical so, principle. So the basic to idea again. is that that you that uh, what we call in statistics regression to the mean, and and the real question that you're asking is regression. Of course, to be moved down towards, and when you see extreme things, you need to move their future forecast down towards the mean. The real question is what? Yeah, what you, mean? Which mean? Do you mean? Do you, do you? And so I think we have to move probably. You, at extreme events like this, you don't expect to continue to happen. So these are this is league wide record breaking quality seasons. So so I'm so the question is, am I expecting out of him the kind of performances we might see in uh, a decent year for a pitcher like Verlander? You know, not great super se- a, 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 a just a, a run of the mill excellent season, probably like a four or five win season. That's probably what I'm forecasting, and I think that's very 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 valuable. And I think the Yankees are are paying for the possibility of that huge upside. I, I, I actually, that's exactly what I was thinking about coming in. The other thing I was thinking about is, again, just because, you know, squash is always on my mind because my son's a squash player here at Penn. The fact that somebody else is the number one guy. All of a sudden, Severino is facing the number two guy. And Paxton and Tanaka, I know it doesn't always align that way during the season, but yeah. in the playoffs, it might. It does. It makes, I can't even tell you how big a difference it is, which is if we believe that Cole is better than Severino and Paxton, which on his best day, he probably is. In probability. Yeah, in probability, <laughs> he, he is. Um, it just changes the fact that, you know, in some sense, I honestly have never believed that Severino was a one. 
I never believed that Paxton was a two. To me, the fact that they're slid down one spot to me changes. For some, maybe it's just psychologically. Maybe I'm constructing a narrative about this. I, I, yeah, I think the Yankees now have the best rotation in baseball. I mean, maybe that's a bold statement. I probably haven't looked at all the rosters as deeply as I should have, but it's a tough argument to 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 counter. Yep, absolutely. Well, I know something else caught your eye in sports, and so why don't we move on to topic number two? Topic number two. So I think the college football playoffs is something that that caught my eye. I mean, I I watched a little bit of of the uh, the, the games last week, and things basically played out according to I know I was to chalk. So I think disappointed. They, I know you were disappointed in that, but which leads to the question. Um, we're gonna. We really have the best four teams. I don't think there's really. I mean, much of an argument. Obviously, there are potentially very good teams not there, but they didn't earn it by by losing. Right? Absolutely. So, and actually, you may remember before you got to your point. You may remember during the game, during the Wisconsin Ohio State game, when Wisconsin was yeah. leading at halftime, but by fourteen, I think I actually texted. We have a Moneyball Crew text stream, and I texted everybody. Suppose Wisconsin ends up winning this game by more than fourteen points. Would they ever think about taking them over Ohio State? Wisconsin would have been a two-loss Big Ten champion, but would have throttled, if you'd like, the undefeated, undefeated. number one team in yeah. the country. Would they ever done that? And to me, that would, I, that's, I would just not that I care about Ohio State. If anything, my wife's parents went to Ohio State. So if anything, I want Ohio State to right. win. I was just begging for that to happen. Of course, it didn't happen. Ohio State came back and won the game. No, what was interesting about it was the the win probability suggested that Wisconsin was was the heavy favorite after at the half because they were up by you know two touchdowns or whatever it but was. But what's interesting about that is no, this is wonderful. I I, I thought follow, that was wrong. <laughs> well, I follow win probabilities all the time in the middle of games, mm-hmm. and what's interesting is how asymmetric it is because they're using the prior strengths of the teams. Yes, if Ohio State had been leading by fourteen, I'll make a number up. You might have seen a 90 to 95% right. win percentage. It was 77. Yeah, well, right, that right. was my yeah. point, is that if Wisconsin's leading, it's probably like three quarters. But, you know, so there are two things that were at stake at that point was, one is is the probability of, oh, the possibility of Ohio not going to the playoffs. Ohio State, yep. Ohio State. And I think that that was, that was even if they lost by, by a touchdown, they still would have I gone. didn't say one touchdown. Yeah, one I or said two. over I think, two I think, touchdowns. I think, I think it, it, so it really had to have been probably at least three touchdowns for them to not go. And But I, my view was that was a remote possi- probability, and I would not have given even Wisconsin a 77% chance of winning at that point. Because, I mean, the preseason, the pregame line was Ohio was a much better team. So what do you make about the, you know, in some sense, the reason why people are now saying it's made a difference is that everybody wanted to be the one seed because then you face Oklahoma, who's the four who's seed, the four seed, as opposed to playing. I, I think people keep forgetting this. There's a team called Clemson. People that do is not the give them nas- the. Uh, that's the defending yeah, national champion. The I think has won. Someone may correct me. Twenty-seven straight games. They've won some extraordinarily large number of consecutive right. games, including beating the Very best good teams, teams in the SEC, and Remember. not during the regular season. Right. But that was the that was the payoff by being number one, which LSU is. They get to face Oklahoma. They don't have to face so Clemson, Clemson and Ohio State play each other in the in the semis, which is of course in some the people would say game. an incredible game. But the question really what caught my eye about the, the playoffs yeah. is there's this talk about going to an eight team, which and, you know I've I've espoused for a long, well, long and, time. And, and people, I mean, as a fan, as a, as a consumer of you know high quality entertainment sports, you'd have to argue how could you you not want this? It's a great idea. By the way, let me just say a spoiler alert for our fans who are Morton Moneyball. I already know have a sense of which way this conversation is going to go. Let me just spoiler alert for our fans. This is going to be a real 
really interesting statistical conversation, and you'll see why in a second. Because right. Adi and I are going to take two. We're going to agree, but we're going to take two different perspectives on eight versus four. Right. So there's so one of the reasons to, to go to eight has has advantages and disadvantages, and most people like to focus on the advantages of why you go to eight. Now let's take aside. Let's put aside the the entertainment value, which I think is clearly a plus. But if you're thinking about why are we, what is the playoffs about? Is the playoffs about trying to identify a champion? When you go to eight teams, you expand to include a larger set. You add much more randomness into the, the, the playoff picture. I mean, and as when good teams play each other, the, the probability that the weaker team wins is not insignificant. It's no, not, maybe not, not like the baseball uh, World Series, but it's, it's still not insignificant, which means that if you go from four to eight and even to 16, you make it much less likely that the best teams ah, will end up playing. So this, is, this was going to be my spoiler alert, because I knew that's what you were going to say, that's and that's right. correct. Yeah. Well, by the way, that, obviously it's correct. Um, but that's not. I was going to make a, a different point, which maybe is a subtle point. Is your goal of the playoffs to maximize or to heighten the probability that the best team wins or to make sure, and by the way, it's uncertain who the best team is, or by going from four to eight, you guarantee that the best team, which may not be one of those top four, actually wins. There you go. No, that, no, that's why I said that's spoiler right. alert, because those that's, are two different objective they're going, functions. Uh, they're going against each other. So exact, the, the that's why I thought we right. talk about it. So the problem is, is that when you, the good thing about going from four to eight is you allow yourself the possibility of, of capturing uh, a team that might be the best team. But actually, let's get back to the purpose of this. What is the purpose of the college football championship? Is it to, uh, to figure out who the best team is, get the most data so you're most likely to... So imagine that as a latent, unobserved variable, the best team, and we want to figure out... Uh, we want to determine why hat uh, we yeah, use statistical language the best team? and and have the highest probability of, of matching um, the truth with 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 what we observe, or is it? And this is a slight modification to figure out award as champion a combination of best and most deserving, and deserving means you actually did what it takes on the field, and sometimes the team that is not the best team is nevertheless the most deserving because. Obviously, it, there there are aspects of, of of sports that are random, but they're not random in the sense of coin toss. It means did you execute when it needed to be executed? I always try to think about it the following sense. Maybe this is this. By the way, this is just for our listeners how I think about these problems. Because Adi just pointed something out, and I don't know the answer, but I tend to think of when I don't know the answer to something, I try to think about the extremes. So let's imagine we had an infinite team playoff, right? Where they played an infinite number of games of knockout games. Yeah, an in, but no, 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 they didn't just play the tournament once. Oh, I see. They over played it an infinite yeah. number of times. By definition, that seems to me like it would raise the probability. And you would uh, you would identify the best team. You'd identify this, the best team. artificial universe right. you created. So to me, now that's not the real world. Now we don't have an infinite number of teams, but we are expanding. That seems to me to raise the probability that we're going to find the best team. The problem is they're only playing once. Right. I actually so, think, I think that... So now th- I that's think the that question. That's why a, I'm unclear right. in my mind. I'm not even sure what that function looks like. And here's an opportunity to wish we had the video again, because I, I would use my hand to explain this. So one would argue that the regular season is there as well, and you can't ignore it. And when you expand the the playoffs, you diminish the value of the regular season, necessarily. Yes, uh, It does change rankings, but it doesn't change. Everyone has an opportunity. So my view is, as you... There's, there's a sweet spot where one isn't enough, an, o- awarding the champion based on just the regular season where they don't all play each other is not enough. Right. But I would argue that 32, for example, is too much 
And why is that? Because yes, you 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 increase the probability of including in the playoffs every team who is possibly the best, but also you throw in a lot of noise well, in the system. Let's talk an example. I mean, th- we have that. Not in college football. We have it in college Ma- basketball. basketball. Absolutely. It's called March Madness. Yep. There's and which is whatever called it is. madness. Yeah. <laughs> There's 68 teams that make it. You know, mm-hmm. the four play in, etc. But, you know, last year Virginia won the tournament. I don't think, I think it was last year Virginia, right? But I don't think everybody thinks that, because remember, Virginia right. was not, by the way, just to show you how random it is, you may remember, Virginia the won the title year, they, last year, they got knocked out in the first round, and they right. were a one seed the first time that it ever happened. That's right. So, again, you go back to this, there's no question, we kind of have that in college basketball, and that's why they and that's call too it much. March, March it's Madness. too much. So, so the question is, what is the optimal value? And I'm arguing that I don't know the answer, um, and that's which is very, 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 very curious, but I, I, think that, I think that eight is too much. I think eight is much too likely to anoint as the national champion a team that is clearly undeserving in the eyes of the public, in the sense that they, you probably will be, you make it much more likely to anoint champion a two-loss team during the regular season. You're going to, you're going to, it's just too much. Um, and what's going to happen is, is uh, you're going to, compl- you're going to start hearing those complaints as soon as you go to 18. I, I will say the following. I completely agree with you in the following sense, and I, I don't disagree with you statistically, but I disagree with you in another sense. I think there's a significant probability, I don't know if it's 10%, 15%, or 20%, whatever the number is, that if they had included Baylor, yep. Wisconsin, maybe Minnesota, and maybe Penn State, those teams, there might be a few others, Auburn, who knows, some other te- Georgia, thank you, Georgia would be another team. There's not an insignificant probability one, one of, those of those teams would like, have won the national be like, title. It's not quite like golf because it's not as, as random as golf where we always take the field rather than the top five teams. Yeah, Alabama. Alabama. <laughs> Alabama thank you, Matt. Be, Alabama, right? Alabama, you know, how about including Al- – matter of fact, Alabama's is an very, interesting this point. This is very interesting. The two Al- lost Alabama winning, let's say there was a three-round and they play, they could easily win the oh, championship. Not only that, I could make an argument – that Alabama certainly would be favored over Oklahoma. I don't think there's any doubt if the two of them played that mm-hmm. Alabama would be favored over Oklahoma. I don't think they'd be favored. Well, if you use Massey Peabody, they might be. But I and other point, you know, FPI, etc. Yeah. I think they would be a very close against everybody except maybe LSU. I mean, they, yeah, that there's a great example. You put Alabama in this tournament, which if there were an 18 tournament. Alabama, Georgia, I'm making it up, Wisconsin, Penn State, Baylor, some combination of those would be in there. I'm starting to think now, I'm raising my, st- I'm saying, I think there's They're a 25 win. to, at least. at least a quarter and to then, a third and then, and then you hear the out, outright, how could a, two, a team two, that lost right. twice now actually beat a team that was undefeated and then and then probably got knocked off in the super uh, a semifinal or something where two two undefeated teams played each other and, and then they get knocked I, the off. The part by I was going to disagree with you was, yeah. not on that part. I think the fans want to see it. Of course, I, do think I mean the they fans do. I mean they it. do. I mean this is a, this is a tricky thing. You know, it's actually uh, speaking of, there, it's always a trade off. The fans want to see one thing, but don't want to see something else, right? So they're going to growl and, and scream when the two lost team wins the national championship. But in the end, they're really happy. And there's always a uh, a trade off between something that the fans want and don't want. And it's a very it's a delicate balance in, in sort of all sports to do that. I wanted to just just go. Here's one uh, champ. Uh, 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 observation that I made. I don't know if you, you're a Harvard guy and I'm a Yale guy, and there was a college, an Ivy League championship, which which went into overtime in Yale. By the way, won. why when you did that, did you point to your undergraduate institution, <laughs> my graduate one? Why can't we? You I'm, can I'm say a Penn, Penn guy. You're, I'm you're a Penn guy. But, okay, but actually, but yes. we can talk about it because yes. one of the things that, that, that this relates to is the power of recruiting. And one, one of the things that we're seeing with these top teams is that they are tending to dominate with the recruiting classes, which are much more, um, not global, obviously, but much more uh, cross 
across no, continental. The uh, college football recruiting used to be much more local. Much more this is actually yep. something that, that Kate and I are working on in a research problem. But we're, we're trying to see what, whether the impact of this is on essentially dynasties created out of fantasy, um, not fantasy, of college football, because the, the best teams are now getting the best recruits, and, and, that's, and that really keeps it up. Now, the reason why I mentioned, say, Harvard and Yale, and we can put Penn in there as well, is that over the last five years, you're starting to see that, that domination in the Ivy League as well. And that Harvard, Yale, and Princeton in particular are picking up substantially stronger recruiting classes. In which sports? All? In football. In no, football. No, football is the one that I've, that I've analyzed. In football. And it's obvious. And I think you're going to see Harvard, Yale, Princeton championships year in and year out. Now, where's Penn lie in all this? Penn is actually in the second tier, um, which they, they do okay, but nothing. They're not dominating like the, like, uh, like the Harvard, Yale, and Princeton are. But then there's a third tier at the bottom that you just, it's going to be a joke. They just cannot get anything like the recruiting classes that sit the, the top are having. And so that, I think, is why we're seeing these eight teams and ten teams year after year in the college football sort of dominating. Well, let me ask you, if that, let's assume that's true, and I, by the way, I'm confident it's true, but not just in the Ivy League. Let's assume it's just true mm-hmm. nationally. Do you think that the NCAA will put on restrictions in some way? Because the last thing anybody wants is an anti-competitive right. league. And so, for example, we're starting to see that, by the way, in lots of sports. For example, do you see a world, let's imagine over the next 10 years, all of the World Series, let's go back to baseball for a second, are Always won by some, com- I know you are, <laughs> are, are won by some combination of the big spending teams. Let's, yeah. let's, let's imagine that happens. Let's imagine in college football. For a time we thought that would be the case. Right, but it's not exact. It hasn't. Exactly Analytics has fought right. that, by the way. But I know, so. but let's imagine that all the college football are won by four the or five recruiting. teams. Yep. So do you think eventually, like, legislation will have to legislate that away? When it's, I say legislation, I don't mean yeah, Congress. I know, I know. So they're already, are, they're already limited. There was a step in that direction by limiting the number of scholarship players per season. Um, and that was designed to keep certain teams from just sort of dominating. Um, and and uh, there might be an increase in that direction. I mean, but what you end up seeing, and this is I've seen in, in, in some of the research that I've done, is that teams are players are willing to go to Alabama as a walk-on. I mean, it's, when I use the word walk-on, I don't really mean the sense of, who the hell are you? Right. How the hell did you get on our team? Right, they know these players. They know who they are. They turn down Division One, A, you know, top, just because they'd rather be at Alabama as a walk-on. And that means you're the 25th. And it may be you're just the second or third. They already have two quarterbacks. You Correct. could be an incredible uh, player. And, of course, you can leave in a second if, you, if it really doesn't work out for you. You can redshirt. There's opportunities to to, to 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 undo your decision, but but teams like this have a tremendous advantage, and I, I think I think it's it's a it's a str- it's a strong possibility that they're going to lower that again from from say 25 scholarship players. I don't think it's 25. I think it's about 23 right now, or 22, 23, and they'll lower it down to maybe 18. Hey, look, people forget. Remember, as I remember, if I'm unless I'm remembering this wrong, Tua was the backup. Yeah, he was the backup to Jalen Hurts, right? So I mean. You think about the depth that these people have, and now yep. now we're debating, you know, two, which one of the, you know, they're both probably NFL, well, Tua is certainly a first-round quarterback, Jalen Hurts maybe needs to throw the ball a little bit better, but I mean, you talk about the depth they have yeah. at every position. How about Baker Mayfield's journey? He did. He was a walk on for two teams. I mean, and talk about quote walk on. This right. is a guy who, you know, was an extraordinary player even in high school, and well, you know. Well, this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. Obviously, in the next half hour, in the following half hour, we have great guests. So stay with us and join us after the break.
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins, for bringing us back with some music in the second quarter of our show. So, Adi... I always say this when I'm sitting in the co- in the host seat that one of the great joys of uh, being on Wharton Moneyball is getting to speak to guests that it are is. really living the front lines of analytics, and writing have... about it, creating content about it, and this quarter of our show is no exception. Uh, this is someone that's been on our show many times in studio often, in st- not today, in studio, but not today. Uh, Michael Salfino. Michael writes about fantasy sports for the Athletics. He obviously does. He has a syndicated column. He writes for Five Thirty Eight in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Michael, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Adi Weiner. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Uh, it's my pleasure. Hi, how you doing, Eric? Hi, Adi. Hey, guy. Yeah, we're doing we're doing great. You know, Adi and I spent obviously since Adi and I are fun, we, we love every sport, but obviously we're fundamentally baseball guys, um, especially me, especially Adi. <laughs> but I'm certainly there are a couple baseball topics I wanted to start out with. Just and then of course we got football. We got lots of stuff to cover, but let me start with baseball. Um, reading your bio. Um, and the team, especially uh, our associate, our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin, wanted me to ask you, how did you get the job? And can you talk to our fans about the fact that you write the backs of Topps cards? And what's that like? Well, um, it was through uh, a mutual friend, the, the guy who runs the fantasy department at the Athletic, Nando DeFino. He was friends with uh, one of the executives at Topps. And so when we went to uh, – um, it was it was an event for the NFL kickoff, and he brought cards with him. And I told him how I collected cards and how my favorite set was the 1971 Topps set, and that was scheduled to be um, the Topps Heritage set, where they put the modern players on the vintage card designs. And he asked me if I would be interested in writing the backs of the cards. And when he said that, I was like, are you kidding me? Like, of course I would. That has been my dream since I was like five years old. So um, that's how that's how that whole thing started, basically. That was, um, I guess, about a year ago. And when, I say, and, when um, you say writing the backs of the cards, just to be clear, let's assume there's 25 players on each team. Let's assume there's, you know, 30, 32 teams. Are you saying you write 800 cards? Yeah, for the heritage set, it was when you count the coins and the um, uh, they do they do cards that are based on the news for the for the um, of the time of the original heritage series release. So I had to write news flash cards um, for 1971, things like you know how Disney World opened, um, and. Uh, so when you add all that up, it was about, I think it was like almost 900 for, for the Heritage set. But then for the other things that I do, um, there there will sometimes be like seven Juan Soto cards. So I will have to write the backs of seven Juan Soto cards for <laughs> their Dynasty product because there's all different variations of Soto in the set. You know, his autograph, it's like maybe a one of one, a one of five, a one of 50, a one of... 100, you know, one of 10, I, I, however they do it. So I have to write. So all those cards need to be different. So, my, so Michael, I want to ask you a question. But first, I'll say that backs of, of baseball cards are hugely important to to my my life in a sense that I would stare at them and study the statistics. And that laid it the foundation. First, 
you know, it was your first entering into the world of stats. Absolutely, and it it taught me so much about how to think about numbers as as a kid. So. But this was the only source when, when, when we were kids, and that's true for all of us. This is the only way you could really find out what was going on and, and have it a nice, simple, compact way a player's history as described by numbers. Today, that's different. You can get everything in just two clicks. So as you're writing the backs of the card, what kind of statistical transformation has there been from the old days where it was just a, you know, a box, basically a big box? What do you put on it now and what do you emphasize? Well, it, it depends. I try to make like maybe um, about 20% of the cards more of uh, a personal back as opposed to uh, something that reflects the statistics that are obviously like somewhat encapsulated on the cards. And then um, with other cards, I'll try to find something um, as recently as possible that sort of summarizes the um, uh, some unique statistical oddity or trend or, or fact about the player that I think has, like, broad interest. But I'll use things now like um, uh, the StatCast data, you know, things you that obviously okay. didn't exist when, when we were doing it. Um, and those that data is not reflected on the back of the card, so that's really good because it gives me an, a, an, a, an opportunity to, to not be repetitive. So things like, you know, no more Mazzara had the longest home run in the major leagues last year. Like that was probably one of the, <laughs> I can't even remember, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that was his card back. That's a neat thing to put on the card. So let's, let's now move on from, let's stay in baseball, but let's move away from the backs of cards to, so there have been, well, there are different orders of magnitude. There have been a bunch of free agent signings the last couple of days. Let me go from the, yeah. I'll call it the least momentous of them to the most momentous. Let's start with the least. Let's start with Didi Gregorius. The reason I'm bringing him up, not just because we're Yankee fans, and also he's now moving to the Phillies, but what did you think about, you know, I'll say the precipitous fall of D.D. Gregorius from a player who two or three years ago might have gotten a six or seven year, $200 million contract, obviously had a major injury in between. Now he's got a one year, $14 million contract. So what did you think about that? And in some sense, the precipitous, if you'd like, free agent market value decline of D.D. Gregorius? I think it was a good signing for the Phillies. One of the things that I found out from talking to players is that when you're, um, as, as somebody who plays fantasy, I tend to discount injuries that um, are, uh, are going to um, expire by the time the season starts. And what I've been told by players is that when you're hurt in the offseason, it totally interrupts your, your routine for preparing for the upcoming season. So um, I'm never surprised anymore when those players struggle upon returning to the majors. And obviously Gregorius' situation was he was actually injured into the actual uh, 2019 season. So it didn't really surprise me at all that that he um, statistically regressed. But I think, you know, his power was, was still in evidence, and that was probably the most surprising part of his transformation as a player once the Yankees acquired him. So um, as a Mets fan, I hate to say that the Phillies made a good move, but I think that this was a good move for the Phillies. Okay, let's now move on to the next one up the tier. Uh, Seven years, $245 million for Steven Strasburg, a 31-year-old Steven Strasburg, who obviously early on in his career obviously had a big injury, which he's obviously successful. Several times. Several times, which he's come back Mm -hmm. from. How do you feel about the Nationals uh, signing Strasburg seven years, 245? Um, 
you know, it's hard It's hard for me to believe, first of all, that Steven Strasburg is 31 years old. Because he just but, came up but, yesterday, uh, right? <laughs> but, but he, exactly. But, but he is, right? And he was obviously, like, such a phenom coming out of college. Um, but he did go to college. I mean, that that puts a lot of time in, which is interesting. Exactly. And it's, it's hard for me to fathom these long-term contracts for pitchers. Um, but I guess Strasburg theoretically is through the window where a, a risk of like a Tommy John injury is more pronounced. Well, he already I, had I, the I, surgery once. Yeah. But those things, um, it's not that rare that they recur though. So yeah. I, I don't know that might be because of his actual pitching mechanics. I don't know if he has adjusted that, but I guess what it comes down to is that if you want an ace caliber pitcher, you're going to have to gamble on the years and probably make a, a decision that is like minus expected value, right? Like, I don't think anybody... In would... the back end. But yeah. can I, can, let me ask you a question about Strasburg. Uh, one of the things, so we're, I know you're about to talk, ask about the next one, but right. there, there are differences in, in, in Cole and Strasburg. Strasburg is 31, Cole is 29. I think that's a sweet spot that's very interesting. I think Strasburg in some way has transformed to be that great pitcher that can go to 35. And you see that with these, with these, with these all-time greats, the Verlanders who just keep going because they figure Verlander out— Verlander says he's Ver, pitching to 45. Yeah, because they just figure out how to become pitchers, not just power pitchers. And I think—I I watched a lot of Strasburg. We all did because the Nationals winning the World Series. He seemed like a smarter, cleverer, more precise pitcher than he ever was where he just tried to blow it past you. And I'm a little worried— I, th- I think it was a good signing for, for for the Nationals. Also, just good for the city, good for the for the player, and and I think that thirty one we have a little bit more forecastability in the in the next four years than you'd get out of out of say a twenty nine year old. What do you think? Yeah, that that's that's interesting. I think there's two ways that a pitcher of his age could go. Somebody who's had such um, elite stuff and still has such elite stuff. There's like the Seaver, the Tom Seaver. Uh, uh, model where he, he basically had two careers: one as a an elite power pitcher, and another one as more of the of the guy who knew how to pitch, like like you suggest, where his stuff was um, diminished, uh, but he was still a very successful pitcher even on the in, in the second half of his career. Uh, but Strasburg, Verlander is, is 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 a guy like Nolan Ryan, where his stuff has somehow remained intact. Now he could obviously through his experience be a, a better pitcher as well and just be able to deploy his uh, arsenal more effectively but his Verlander stuff has never really diminished and I don't know I would really not want a Strasburg with diminished stuff but I would probably say that about any pitch, pitcher it's really not anything it's not a slight against Strasburg's ability to to pitch with diminished stuff um, in a more sort of savvy way. I just, I'm uncomfortable um, assuming that a pitcher is going to be be able to maintain a high level of effectiveness if he loses, um, for example, velocity. 
We're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics. I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. We're talking to Michael Salfino. Michael writes for Fantasy Sports for the Athletic. He also writes for 538 in the Wall Street Journal, and you can find him all over the place in the sports and analytics world. Um, let's now, what do you think about the last signing, which obviously, as Yankee fans for Adi and myself, um, what do you think about Garrett Cole? Was that a, you know, was that a good deal? Obviously, it's nine years, 324. Good deal for the Yankees? I think I've read that that the Angels paid for their entire like ballpark and the surrounding real estate, um, and, and it's and it's funny because the Angels were thought to be uh, were, were thought to be like the the main rival for the Yankees in signing uh, Cole. So um, it's just really hard to get my head around that kind of money. But I I am always pro player in terms of compensation because. Um, it's just so hard to find another Garrett Cole. Like he deserves as much money as he can as he can get. Um, but but from a pure baseball standpoint, and it's interesting too. Even with Strasburg, like would you um, would you guys recommend that if you're torn between signing a hitter or a pitcher, that you sign a hitter? Like that's the way we kind of think in fantasy and in dynasty when we're building fake teams, where we always defer to the hitter over the pitcher because of things like injury risk. But it seems like the obviously the the, um, at the the Nationals made the decision that Strasburg was the priority over Rendon, and um, since they said that they could only probably sign one, and now the Yankees have made Cole their highest paid player, and and plus there's luxury tax implications as well. You know, you know, Michael, you you, you raised the fantasy a as, point. as an analogy, but one thing that's very different about fantasy versus in, versus actual baseball, and this Eric and I talked about this earlier, is in fantasy there's a limited pie. Every team has the same amount of money, whether it's the draft position or how much. This is you're just all treated equally. The Yankees right. aren't equal in all this in this game. They have that's more true. money. And they they can they can blow it if they feel like it, and I think this is a great sign because they they can blow their money and might as well get the best player. So, uh, Michael, let me ask you a specific question that builds on exactly what you just asked. Which one? Let's say it's Rendon or whoever the best available hitter is. You think in baseball? Adi and I were talking about this in the first half hour of the show. Which one raises your probability? given you're already in the right tail. The Yankees were already a very good team, an elite team. Now there may be a more elite team. If you were the Yankees, and you obviously study statistics, you study sports, etc., which do you think would have been better for the Yankees? Get the best hitter for $300 million, or get the best pitcher for the same years and $300 million? I think for the Yankees, the, the pitcher was the priority. Um it was the Yankees had such a weird year because they were bringing up these guys who really didn't have much of a prospect pedigree, and everybody hit every single. It's like you put on that uniform and you were like an eight fifty OPS guy, <laughs> yeah. like, Urshela, the, the classic example. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it was it was insane. Like how it didn't matter that everybody who came up to replace another guy who was a good hitter became a good hitter. Um, so that's definitely the move that I would have made for the Yankees. For the Nationals, given the fact that, unlike the Yankees, I, I don't think it's, it's reasonable to assume that they can afford to make a big mistake. So I think that that's a really interesting question for them. To be honest, if I were the Nationals, I would have signed Rendon. But losing an ace-caliber pitcher like Strasburg is crippling. Absolutely. Well, let's do a little switch from baseball, though. Adi and I could talk about baseball forever. We could have you back on the rest of the show and just talk (laughs) baseball. Let's make a little switch to the NFL. So 
I'm going to start since Shane's not here, but even if he were here. Matter of fact, I'd be more likely to ask you the question I'm about to ask you if he were here, because he's a Patriots lover. I'm obviously from New York. I hate everything about the Patriots. He is a Tom Brady fanboy. He's a Tom Brady fanboy. <laughs> Please promise me from your expert perspective, is Tom Brady as bad as I think he is? Like, he looks to me to be, look, here's what you do. You double Edelman and rush the passer, and this guy's going to have like a 20 QBR. Just tell me he's as bad as I think he is. Well, I think it's like it's like a perfect storm in a negative sense, where Brady is obviously at 42. You know his skills are diminished and or diminishing at a at a minimum. But the Patriots also did not fortify the team with the weapons that. He would need to be effective, and I think that the um, the trend in the NFL, and I don't hear people really talk about this much, even though they focus so much on air yards and depth of target. That I think that, that the really effective offenses have players who are specialists in each strata of the field. So you have, you know, ideally a receiving running back who can um, work the line of scrimmage area of the field. Then you have your short target, uh, like typically like a slot receiver. Then you have an intermediate guy who's one of your um, outside wideouts, and then you should have a deep depth of the target guy uh, that is that specializes in, in being able to um, secure those targets on the other side of the field. And that way, the defense, you know, you have the option of attacking the entire field uh, on a vertical level. And the Patriots right now have a bunch of guys that operate in the short area of the field. So their offense can be, and their passing game can be completely suffocated. But you could also say that maybe Brady, even if he had it. Right, couldn't get the ball there. Can't get the ball there. So, yeah. Um, In the the last 10 games, his YPA is 5.8. And this century, there are only 31 quarterbacks who, for a full season, had a YPA of 5.8 or below. And, boy, you don't want to be in the company of those quarterbacks. Uh, so it's been a shocking decline, even if you adjust for his lack of talent and the problems that the Patriots have on the offensive line. Um, I, so I think it's it's a combination of the factors. But I, I can't see this changing. I, I can't see the Patriots pulling a rabbit out of their hat again. Can I ask you, uh, in baseball, when someone declines, we measure it and report it. They get slow. You can measure their speed. You, they, they throw slower. Everything. They hit the ball so, with less power. Is there anything you can report about Brady that is, like, really measurable? Do you throw the ball with much less velocity than he used to? Or, and is that, Do you have a number like that that we can hear? It's so hard because true skill level is, is very difficult to ascertain in football relative to baseball. Right. So as somebody who like works in both worlds, baseball is so refreshing because Mike Trout, like I know that Mike Trout, no matter where you put him, is going to be Mike Trout, right? Where the, the quarterback, you know, has the play caller, has the offensive line, has all, all of these pieces. It's just like so hard to separate the, the, the player from his true ability level um, from from his team and his coaching environment. And so uh, I think that that's the problem that we're having with Brady. But I think we could assume that his coaching environment is still super elite since I think no, nobody would really argue the point that Bill Belichick is probably the greatest coach of all time. Um, and then you have to then go to, the, to his supporting cast in terms of his uh, receivers and his offensive line, which I think 
in fairness, are, are probably subpar on an NFL level. Michael, since we only have about two minutes left, let me ask you, how do you see the rest of the NFL season playing out? We only, you know, in the AFC, let's say we have Ravens, Chiefs, Pats, and you could argue Texans, who have beaten all those teams, by the way. You have the Saints, the 49ers, maybe the Seahawks in the NFC, how do you, or Packers, too. How do you see the rest of the season playing out? Well, I really, I've liked the 49ers all year, but I noticed, like, I pulled up Cade's numbers, and I think Baltimore, you know, because I was involved with Cade's project from the beginning, Baltimore might have the highest number in the history of his model um, in terms of, uh, I mean, he's got them, like, 12 uh, 11, or something, 11 and 11. half. 11.3 points better than a league average team on a neutral field. Like, that's an insane number. So I, I, I think you would have to say that they're the prohibitive favorite. The problem with Baltimore is they kind of have a gimmick offense, and you never know if a team is going to pull uh, something like the Chargers did last year where they played with seven defensive backs and no linebackers, and that really gave Lamar Jackson problems in the running game. They just put all the fast guys on the field. So you don't know. Nobody's really done that because I wrote about this for 538. You can't, you can't really – change the, the entire structure of your team for one opponent and uh, teams don't even have enough defensive backs to dress enough to employ uh, deploy that kind of a defense but in the playoffs who knows what's going to happen so i think that for a team that's so elite baltimore is probably um uh, less projectable because they are susceptible i think as a as a unicorn offense to facing a unicorn defense and then you don't know what will happen well michael we have to run here but we'd like to thank you for joining us we've been talking to michael salfino you can follow him at the athletic and 538 in the wall street journal this has been the first half of wharton moneyball uh please stay with us and join us after the break Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics, Adi Weiner. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Shane Jensen, are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132. And you can, of course, download our pad- podcast, Wharton Moneyball. We're also easy to follow. We're a great Twitter follow, at WMoneyball. And you can always contact us, call in at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So Adi, we obviously have another great guest in our nine o'clock hour. I'm excited to talk to Ben Baldwin, uh, and welcoming back to Wharton Moneyball. Ben is an economist by trade, using large data sets to understand human behavior. That's kind of what we do for a living. Uh, ben is currently working for the Athletic after previously covering the Seattle Seahawks for field goals. His work has been on football outsiders, football perspective, and he covers all kinds of different topics. So, Ben, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Adi Weiner. Uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Uh, thank you. Uh, good morning to both of you, and love the show, so always happy to hop on. Oh, well, that's great. Thank you for thank you for the kind words about it. It's been five and a half years of pure joy talking about statistics and sports, and to think they pay us for this, so it's, it's wonderful to do. Um, let's start with the Seahawks. Um, I watched that game the other night. Not good. And so, you know, is should we, you know, is it time to sound the alarm bells and worry that the Seahawks are a fundamentally flawed team? Or should we, how, how do you think about the Seahawks, their performance this week, and just overall them as a team that's now sitting in the fifth seed? No, I even wrote in my notes for the show this morning, they could end up 13-3 and three in the five seed in the NFC. 
Yeah, so they they are absolutely a flawed team. Um, <clears throat> if you look like at something like their point differential, which is kind of the gold standard of simple predictive statistics, their point differential was not one that would paint them as one of the top teams in the NFC like the 49ers or the Saints. They were more like closer to the Rams or the Titans, and they were just getting by with exceptional luck in one-score games. <clears throat> uh, I think their record was 9-1 and one in games decided by seven points or less, and um, that's how you end up with a team that's decent but not great and um, prone to getting embarrassed by a division rival on primetime. So um, if they win out, they will still win the division and probably get a bye. So in that oh, sense, so they win the tiebreaker. They must win that. They still play the 49ers, so they would both be That's thirteen right. and three. They must win the tiebreaker based on well, did they maybe head maybe head to head? So that would be the first tiebreaker. So, so Ben, are you just yeah. saying that 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 the Seahawks were outperforming what we might call in baseball the Pythagorean, which there is a similar version of that for football? Their point differential predicted a much lower win record than what they actually had. Yes, that's exactly right. <clears throat> there is a, a football equivalent of that, and um, they, their underlying performance was not great. They they did win in San Francisco earlier this year, and they still have a game against the 49ers later this year in Seattle. So um, it, that makes football a little bit different than baseball where uh, or basketball, where if you have a bad Pythagorean record, then um, you're probably not going to perform well in the future. Football is such a small sample size sport that mm-hmm. the Seahawks could still win their next three games and they would have a bye in the NFC. If you get a bye, all you need to do is win one home game and one other game, and you're in the Super Bowl. So that's that's kind of the the silver lining for Seahawks fans yeah. right now, even though the team is probably not that good. I love how you ro- you rolled them up. You have, if they win the next three and then they win the next two, they're in the Super Bowl. <laughs> they're still probably a long shot. So, how, so Ben, how are you seeing the – let's talk about the NFC, which most people consider extraordinarily competitive this year. I mean, obviously the Seahawks are in it. They have to be considered. The 49ers are clearly in it. The Saints are clearly in it. Whenever you have Aaron Rodgers and the Packers seem like a reasonable team, they're absolutely in it. We'll debate whether whoever wins the NFC East is in it. We could debate that whether it's the it's going to be the nine and seven or eight and eight Eagles or Cowboys. But how do you see the NFC playing out? Yeah, so there's there's definitely a top tier, and that tier is the 49ers by themselves, in my opinion. So um, they both are favored to get a buy and um, are a very good team. Um, the and the in my opinion the the second team who we should pay attention to once the playoffs start or whoever gets the second bye. And for that, it's coming down to the Saints and the Packers. Uh, right now, I think they're both tied with a 10-3 record and the Packers hold the tiebreaker. So if the Packers went out, they haven't had an impressive season either. They've also had a lot of good fortune in close games. But they if they get a bye week, then um, again, all they have to do is win two games to get to the Super Bowl. So they're a team that we I should pay attention to the the Saints are probably a better team than the Packers, but their loss uh, against the 49ers on Sunday was pretty damaging to um, their uh, potential for making a deep playoff run. They they basically have to win out and hope that the Packers lose the game. I was going to talk to you about that. How much of a ti- I watched the end of that uh, 49ers uh, Saints game. How much of a Titanic shift was that 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 catch? And then the face mask. I mean, that last three points that gave the 49ers the win, the tiebreaker, the head-to-head, I mean, all the things. How much of a, like, if the Saints had held on to that game, not scored with 50 seconds left on the clock, but scored with five seconds left on the clock and won that game, 
Would you be here on Wharton Moneyball telling us, you know what, the Saints are looking good. I, th- I favor them over the 49ers because now they're probably going to have home field. How big a shift in the NFL do you think that one last 50 seconds of that game was? So it, it's definitely massive, not only for the Saints and 49ers, but also for uh, the other teams in the NFC. So I mentioned the Packers earlier. They were probably more than any other team watching that game with very keen interest because they can win a tiebreaker over the Saints, but not the 49ers because they lost to the 49ers earlier this season. So now with the 49ers winning, the Packers went from very, very small likelihood of getting a buy to now it's, all of a sudden it's a real, really realistic possibility. Uh, and the other uh, losers from this game, obviously, were the Seahawks, where um, their margin for error for winning the division went from um, some cushion to basically no cushion. Right now they, they really do have to win their last three games. And after their performance on Sunday night, um, I, I'm not sure how likely that even is. I know I know that, Ben, you've written a lot about defense and how whether it matters or not in the NFL. How about the fact that the 49ers-Saints game was 45 to 43 I think was the final score. How much, how do you feel about that? Like how do you and I think as I remember there were most points were scored in the first half of that game of anyone in the NFL this season. I think it was 28 to 27 at the half. Are you concerned if you're the 49ers? I mean, look, Drew Brees I've seen it for 20 years. Drew Brees can light up anybody, but aren't you concerned that the vaunted 49ers gave up 43 points? I don't care to who it is. So if if I were the 49ers, I would actually not be super concerned. So um, when we're comparing offense to defense, um, let's say we do something like uh, split the season into the first half and the second half, so eight games on each side, and we're looking at how well offense in the first half of the season predicts offense later and defense in the first half of the season predicts defense later. Offense is much, much, much more stable uh, than defense. So if you're – uh, if you have a, a great offense and a bad defense, then we should expect you to perform better going forward as a team than uh, the converse, uh, a, a team like the Patriots, for example. Uh, so for the 49ers, they did have what looked to be an elite defense, but uh, what people haven't been talking about as much is that their offense has actually been pretty good. So even if their defense did regress, and, and we certainly saw that Sunday, even though, yes, Drew Brees is a Hall of Famer and a great quarterback, um, the 49ers' offense is absolutely good enough to um, carry them through a deep playoff run, even if their defense isn't the dominant unit we saw to start the season. How are you saying? We obviously have been to, since you're uh, you spend obviously time in Seattle and stuff. You're more of an NFC guy, but how are you viewing the AFC? Like, did we basically see you know when Kansas City obviously broke uh, New England's 21 game home winning streak, including the playoffs? Um, and with, we all looked at this. Now we've seen a couple weeks in a row. I mean, the Patriots lost to the Texans, and uh, Tom Brady looked bad. They lost to, obviously, the Chiefs. Tom Brady looked bad. We also asked our last guest, Michael Salfino, you know, is, is the Patriot dynasty over? How do you see the AFC, and how big was that game for the uh, for the Chiefs? Yeah, that was, that was very important. Um, again, if we're talking about um, teams that have a shot at a bye week, and, and I, I harp on the bye week so much because uh, it, it's just it's such an uphill battle for teams that don't get the bye week to win three straight playoff games. Well, you do play one less game, so even if the odds are 50-50 in every game, you've just doubled yeah, your yeah. probability. I mean, just I know that's not exactly right, but it's not so far from right. Yeah, it's, so there's that. So you're adding another game. You're, guaranteed, you're almost guaranteed to have two of your three playoff games on the road. 
And in the divisional round, you're facing a team that's coming off a bye week. So if, if you put all those things together, uh, it's just such an uphill challenge. And we have this is kind of dangerously into small sample size trends, but the last time we had a team that played on wild card weekend, weekend reached the Super Bowl was that uh, Ravens 49ers Super Bowl uh, back in 2012. Um, so going back to the AFC, I, I think it's kind of similar to the NFC. So there's one dominant team on top. Um, in the NFC, that's the 49ers, and, and the AFC equivalent is the Ravens, and then a bunch of teams scrambling for the second seed. Uh, the Patriots are in position to get that, but um, and I'm not totally sure how the tiebreakers work, but I think the Chiefs are still alive there, and uh, whoever gets the second seed um, will obviously have an easier path through the playoffs. And I, I personally would really enjoy seeing another Ravens-Chiefs game. I, I thought the first time those two teams played was fascinating. So I'm hoping we get that uh, as a playoff matchup, but uh, we'll see if that actually happens. So obviously the quarterback position in the NFL is obviously, it's always been hugely important, but maybe even more important than ever now. How are you thinking about, as you evaluate quarterbacks, can you tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, like what kind of measures you're using, what kind of ways you're thinking about quarterback performance that might be different than, let's say, the average fan? Sure. So one measure that um, people have really started looking at in the past year is, is this measure called uh, completion percentage over expected or CPOE. And this is uh, a measure that was developed by a friend of the show, Josh Hermsmeyer, uh, over the offseason when he was looking at projecting college quarterbacks into the NFL. And, and the way this works is uh, for every pass on the field, we can um, calculate how likely it is to be completed just based on how far downfield it is. Uh, if someone's throwing... Uh, screen passes and checkdowns. Um, we should expect their completion percentage to be high, but that doesn't tell us much about how accurate the quarterback actually is because those passes should be complete. So if we take the profile of someone's throws, um, calculate how many passes um, should be completed by an average quarterback, and then compare the quarterback's actual completion percentage to that, uh, we get this um, basically depth-adjusted completion percentage. And this it sounds somewhat convoluted, but when people started looking at it, they found that it's, it's a very stable measure for a given quarterback from season to season. So it does seem to be um, isolating something inherent to quarterbacks um, at doing the primary part of the job, which is um, completing passes. And it's also correlated with things like uh, how efficient the offense is in the following year and things like that. Is there any, um, uh, when you think about the quarterbacks, if you break down their throws to, let's call them short, medium, and let's call them deep balls, are there some quarterbacks that are really good, you know, I'm really accurate throwing the short ball, but I'm really bad at the deep ball, or vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the poster child for deep ball accuracy has been Russell Wilson, so his um the, the deep part of his depth-adjusted completion percentage is always very good. And then in the short and intermediate range, he's always maybe average to good. And then there's quarterbacks like uh, Drew Brees and more recently Ryan Tannehill, who's basically breaking the system with his <laughs> completion percentage this year. They've both been very good in the, the short to intermediate ranges. So, yes, absolutely, there are different quarterbacks have um, different strengths at attacking different parts of the field. Do people also look at this by, I, you know, I hate to say it because this could be a small sample, you could tell a narrative around this, but like completion percentage above expected, 
in the clutch part of the game. Like the people, no, no, I, I do last because oh, I, okay, I prefaced it with small samples <laughs> yeah. and narrative. But I'm just saying, if we're going to use this metric, are there clutch quarterbacks that perform well on this metric in certain situations? Or if I weight it by the probability, like let's call it the expected win share that it increases. Are there quarterbacks that seem to do well when it matters, but not well when it, not as well when it doesn't matter? So I don't think, I'm not saying this is a bad idea, but I don't think people... It's not a good one. I just wanted to ask (laughs) you a question. (laughs) I don't think people have looked at um, CPOE specifically. People have done some stuff um, with just looking at, for example, expected points added. And my my foggy recollection is that, as you might expect, there's um, variance in how well given quarterbacks do just because of sample size issues and things like that. Um, so I'm, I don't have a great sense of whether there's um, clutch quarterbacks or not. Well, I think I mean the, we don't have a great sense whether clutch anything. I mean this is a, this yep. is the age old question in sports in general. But I think with football, it's particularly complicated because the ambitions change. The actual ambitions are, are different depending on the down, the distance, the time of the game, the point differential, and you don't see this in baseball. I mean, you, you, every hitter gets gets up there, and maybe there's some some small situations where you don't want to hit the ball out of the park, but mostly that's what they do all the time, and that's very different in football, and that makes making these adjustments really hard. Um, and that's why I, that's when we, we talked earlier with Mike Selfino about try to evaluate quarterbacks, and it's just so hard to do in this consistent basis. Yeah, that, that is that's definitely true. And even um, in football, there's just such a challenge of isolating a quarterback, um, taking out supporting cast and team environment, things like that. I mentioned Brian Tannehill earlier, and all all the stat nerds have been talking about him this year because all of his advanced statistics have just been insanely good. He's leading the league in CPOE and a lot of other things. And the question becomes is he actually a good player? And if so, um, how were his stats so bad in Miami in in his previous stop? And if it's just because of the environment, then that raises a lot of questions about how much does environment Environment matter. Well, let's not, let's not call it an environment, Ben. Let's call it scheme. Uh, you've, you've written a lot about scheme and, um, how do you feel that, you know, the scheme matters? So maybe, you know, what's the job of a coach is to say, what's Tannehill, what's Aaron Rodgers, what's Russell Wilson, what's Tom Brady? What are they continue to be good at? And I'm going to scheme things for what they're good at. Yeah, so the, the job of a coach is to place players in the best position they can to succeed. And the primary example of this is the Ravens, where I think a lot of coaches would not have succeeded with Lamar Jackson to the extent that the Ravens had, but they have this unique player and they say, uh, what is his skill set? How can we best design an offense to support his skill set? And um, how can we add players in the draft and free agency that also complement uh, the skill set? And I, I think a lot of teams, for example, the Seahawks, are not very good at um, asking these questions and supporting the most important player on the team, which is the quarterback.
So we're here on Wharton Moneyball talking to Ben Baldwin. Ben's an economist by training. He's recently joined The Athletic. He's also written for Football Outsiders and Football Perspective. If you want to join us here on Wharton Moneyball, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So, Ben, um, if I had said the following four quarterbacks all in one sentence, Aaron Rodgers, Jameis Winston, Tom Brady, and Baker Mayfield, most people would not think of them being in the same sentence except, well, we've got two Hall of Fame quarterbacks, one person starting his career, and one person on the Buccaneers, and by the way, I'm a Buccaneers fan, who looks really bad at times. Except when we look at the statistic that lots of people like to report for quarterbacks QBR, they're actually fairly near each other. Does it say something about QBR, or actually, in your mind, are they all kind of near each other? I think if we're talking about this season only, I don't want Patriots and Packers fans to yell at me for this, but if we're talking about this season only, I, I think that's reasonable. Um, Jameis Winston is kind of one of the hardest quarterbacks to think about because he throws so many just bad interceptions that when you're watching him, it's just like you're just asking yourself, how, why did he throw that? What is he thinking when he's doing that? But if you look at um, his, um, his contribution towards the offense and moving the ball down the field, the, the Buccaneers usually have uh, a pretty good offense if, if you just look at um, whether they're able to move the ball. So um, how you balance interceptions with um, consistently throwing the ball past the six and earning first downs and moving the ball, um, I think is hard for a lot of people to wrap their minds around um, the but we that must have a way of doing this. I mean, that's what we analysts do, right? You must have a, a yeah, value of an interception on average, and the value, you know. So, how does it balance out? Pretty badly, I thought. Yeah, so that's why he's not one of the top quarterbacks. But right. if you compare it to someone like Aaron Rodgers, people will look at uh, Aaron Rodgers and say, "Well, he only has two interceptions, so obviously he's a better quarterback than Jameis Winston." But if you just look at how many interceptions a player throws, that doesn't tell you um, how often he's earning first downs, how often he's taking sacks. Um, and these other things that are also important to the outcome of the game. So I think QB, measures like QBR or even just looking at uh, expected points added, these things that quantify um, the value of each play, uh, I, I think have been really helpful uh, in understanding um, just how important each play is and, and just how flawed traditional measures like touchdown to interception ratio or passer rating are. Well, that's what I was going to bring up. You know, one of my favorite stats that I just looked up yesterday, here are the top five quarterbacks in the league right now in terms of uh, yards, or so yards per game, etc. Dak Prescott, 6-7 and seven for the Cowboys. Jameis Winston is second, 6-7 and seven with the Bucks. Phillip Rivers, 5-8 and eight with the Chargers. Jared Goff, 8-5 and five with the Rams. And Matt Ryan, 4-9 and nine with the Falcons. So what does that say to you, or does it say anything, when, number one, am I looking at a bad stat? Like, you know, it's just total yards, just a bad way to look at it, because you could be throwing the ball a lot, and it turns out these teams, maybe because they're behind all the time, have to throw the ball more. And there you go. How do you think about, <laughs> yeah, how do you think about evaluating quarterbacks? Like, if you could only, if we were we were talking to uh, Michael Salfino earlier in the show, and he's talking about, he writes the back of Topps baseball cards. If you had to, if you were able to write the back of football cards for the NFL, what three or four stats should we be looking at in your mind to think about quarterbacks? Uh, so I would definitely put uh, CPOE on there, the completion percentage over expected. Uh, yep. I would put EPA per play on there, uh, expected points added per play. Uh, and for a third one, I think I would 
um, just for the most simple thing that people could understand that's also important, I would just put uh, first down rate. So the, the percent of your plays that earn first downs, uh, I think that's yeah. uh, very underused, but also important. I, I think that's a really good one because we, we would call that play success in some level. And if I know a little bit about football and I've done some analysis myself, that's actually an underused statistic. Did you do what you, yep. did you execute what you were supposed to do? Of course, it's a sort of a team like level statistic, which doesn't really partial or divide up at the quarterback level, but it's particularly good. So, Ben, since you, met, you mentioned those three measures, are there any quarterbacks out there that we're not talking about that we should be talking about? Because I know you've done an analysis of both quarterbacks, you've done an uh, analysis of teams. So are there either quarterbacks or teams that we're not talking about that seem to be either you know exceeding their win-loss or worse than their win-loss? How, how do you think about quarterbacks and teams right now? So I mentioned Ryan Tannehill is, is kind of the, the golden boy right now for these advanced measures. Um, so I'll throw out one more, which is Kirk Cousins, and he is <laughs> another quarterback that is... You don't want to throw him out, right? You mean you're throwing you him mean, out as you, someone that's you doing... You mean you actually think he's good. Tell us why. Yeah, so he he was not impressive last year, granted, and then he had a very, very bad start to this season. And then since then, he's been very good. So... At, at all, for all these measures I talked about, uh, completion percentage over expected, um, success rate, uh, expected points out of the play, the Vikings passing offense has been very good. And, the, of course, the challenge is how to separate him from um, their scheme, which is good. And he has Stefan Diggs, who is very good, um, and even Adam Thielen earlier this year. So, yes, there's all these entanglement issues, but people just kind of write Kurt Cousins off as a bad quarterback and – his actual, like, the, of the stats that we're talking about, um, even going back to his Redskins days, have been pretty good. So I, I think he's kind of unfairly maligned by the general public. Well, look, let me let me just say one thing about the Vikings right now. They're sitting, if I've, I'm pretty sure I've got this right, they're sitting in the last wild card spot in the NFC. They could go, and although uh, Zach Drapkin will probably correct me, I think, can they go 12-4 and four and still be the sixth seed in the NFC? I, I think uh, it's yes. okay. So that would be one of the most shocking results, as I can remember. I'm, you know, I've been watching the NFL since the '70s. A twelve and four number six seed. Yeah, and and possibly a, a seven and nine four seed. I think that's still on the table too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's interesting. So what do you think about the valuations? I mean, so right now, just looking at the the probabilities, the Vikings are plus three thousand for the Super Bowl. Do you yeah, think so that's? I think they're a very good team, um, probably a better team than the Seahawks, even though the Seahawks did beat them. But um, so many things have to go right for the Vikings to even win their division, much less get a bye. That again, it's going to be an uphill climb once they get to the playoffs. So to win their division, they not only have to beat the Packers when they play. Uh, I think that's the Monday night game, Week 16. Yep. But they also need the Packers to lose one more game um, to either the Bears or the Lions, which is kind of asking a lot. So if if all those things don't happen, then then the Vikings are going to be um, a number six or maybe number five seed, and then they have to go on the road for the whole playoffs, which I, I think is unlikely. But 
they would emerge from the NFC in that case. So before I ask you your predictions for the season, um, could you tell us what you're working on currently? Because, you know, um, when you're an economist by training and you like to use big data and everything, um, could you tell us, A, what you're working on within sports and analytics, and possibly even maybe you're working on stuff that's outside of it but that uses the same skill set? Because as you know, when you're a big data person, you can work on all kinds of things. So what are you working on now? Um, sure. So one of the things I've been thinking about is, and, and a lot of people have done things like that, so it's it, it, perhaps not super interesting, but looking into um, which measures in the middle of the season best predict uh, team performance later in the season. So I mentioned earlier that um, offense is much more predictive than defense. Um, I also looked into um, football outsiders, DVOA. So I I think Aaron Schatz is also uh, a friend of the show. Yep. I I love his DVOA, by the way. I think it's an underrated, underused statistic. Could you just say, uh, Ben, can you just tell our fans here on Wharton Moneyball what DVOA is and how it's measured? Yeah, so this is defense adjusted, which is the D uh, value over average. So it, it takes every single play, um, looks at whether it was successful or not, and then compares that play to, or it compares teams' performance in various situations to other teams around the league. And it's it's situation and defensive adjusted, and I really like the situation part about it as well, because it says yeah. you know when it's when you're when you're third and two, you don't expect the same things out of four, first and ten, and you have to adjust for that. Yes, that's right, and and I I found that it it does perform very well at, at predicting um, team performance later in the season. So if you just compare it to something like expected points out of play, it, it does a better job of explaining um, what's going to happen. So I, one of the things I want to do is look into um, which adjustments might be driving that. So is it the defense adjustment that's important? Is it the situation adjustment? Is it the garbage time adjustment? Uh, red zone performance? Kind of all these different things that. Um, get smashed together into one measure, but we don't really have a sense of how it breaks uh, down. Which things, yeah, exactly. Which, which things are the most important uh, in terms of predicting how teams are going to do going forward? Can I ask a quick follow up? They, ha- uh, they have something called VOA, which is basically DVOA without the D, so it doesn't do the defensive adjustment. How does that predict? Is that that would say that the defense, if the v- VOA just predicts very well, then then maybe it's not the defensive that matters. Do you know yeah, the answer? So that's- that's exactly at the top of my list of things that I want to look into. All right. Well, I, tweet it out when you get it done. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ben, let me ask you before, again, I get to the final, your kind of predictions for the season. Um, do you need, let me ask a question, do you need theory here? Like, you're, you're talking about looking at mid-season uh, performance and seeing how well it predicts final performance. Um, can anybody that knows some big data analytics, machine learning methods, whatever they're going to apply here. Can someone just smash all that data into some algorithm and come out with some predictive findings? Or where does, I'll call it the the gray hair, the experience in the sport, having worked in it come in? Or can anybody just build their model and all of a sudden start tweeting about it? Yeah, so I, I think that's a good question. And there's, there's definitely some, both things are important. Um, the experience of knowing um, where to even start in the first place, which things might be important um, to even look at. Um, maybe red zone performance is random or third down performance is random, things like that. And and you, you can't really know the right questions to start asking without um, knowledge of the game and kind of previous work um, that people have done on it. But um, for people who are interested in getting the data and doing stuff like that. Um, NFL Scraper is um, a great package for getting your hands on a decade of play-by-play data. And if you want to play around with it and you're a 
undergraduate or graduate student who wants some data to do a project on, then um, it, it's a great opportunity and, and resource out there, too. So, Ben, maybe as a last question, let me just ask you. So how do you see the season playing out, given you do you mentioned that you see two kind of elite teams, one in each conference, San Francisco and Baltimore? Is that the Super Bowl? Or let me say the following. I'll give you San Francisco and Baltimore, and I'll take the field. So who, which one of those do you like? How, ah, I always like that's to try, a good question. I always try to get people not just to put their money where their mouth is, but like how elite do you think they are? So I, I think the answer to anything versus the field is almost always going to be the field. So I would take that side of it. But it's a close I one, though. Think, what do you think in this case? So I think the it was maybe something like, actually, I haven't looked at the chance of making the Super Bowl. But even if we thought both the Ravens and the 49ers had a 50-50 shot of getting to the Super Bowl, which I think is probably even a bit aggressive for them, then the chance of them playing in the Super Bowl if, if we just multiply those independently, it would be something like one in four. So I, I do think it is easily the most likely Super Bowl outcome uh, if we're talking about two sets of teams, but because it's football and football's random and six teams make the playoffs on each side, then um, the, the field is, is probably going to be the right choice, even though another 49ers-Ravens game would be uh, really interesting to see. Well, it's 54-46, to according to 538. Um, to make the Super to make, Bowl. You know, so that the, f- the field is 54%. I see. So what? just to give you what 538 is saying, they're agreeing with you. But it, they're also saying it's very close. Wow. So that's, you know, because obviously we can I do the... the I always do... Although I... Uh, Seahawks fans, close your ears. I, I would love another uh, 49ers Ravens Super Bowl. So. Well, there we go. Well, Ben, we'd like to thank you for joining us on uh, Wharton Moneyball. Ben's an economist by trade. He writes. You can find his work at The Athletic. Uh, he sometimes writes for work on Football Outsiders and Football Perspective. So, Ben, we'd like to thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have one quarter to go, including Moneyball matchups and lots of other things that caught Adi and my eye in sports. Please stay with us and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, statistics, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner. As always, some combination of us, Shane Jensen and Cade Massey, are every Wednesday morning live on Sirius XM 132. If you want to join the conversation for our last half hour, maybe you have a Moneyball matchup you want to talk about, maybe you have some other sports topic you want to talk about, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. We hope you also follow us on Twitter at at WMoneyball. And you can always email our producer, Matt Datz, during the show or during the week at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Adi, for those people that do follow us on Wharton Moneyball and also follow me on Twitter, at E. Bradlow, they'll notice I've been tweeting a lot this week, but it's about something that involves you and something that really we you've been building towards for years here at the Wharton School. About two School. years, yeah. I know. It, it's, it's, and it's something that I think is going to be so fundamental not only to business but the training of our students, and that's something that's just got launched here at the Wharton School. School it's a great name. It's called Wasabi, which stands for Wharton Sports Analytics and Business Initiative. You're obviously going to be the faculty lead of it, along with Cade Massey, you on the analytics side, him on the business side. Can you tell our listeners here on Wharton Buddy Ball, what is Wasabi? How did it start? And what do you hope to accomplish with it? So 
let's roll it back. So we've, we've had for a number of years, about 10 years, I think, uh, what we called WISBY, which was the predecessor to Wasabi. I love to tell people when they see it written that the acronym is pronounced like it goes along with uh, sushi. Um, we had this WISBY, which was Wart's, Wharton Sports Business Initiative. And uh, the faculty leads for that program uh, left to other programs. And we, we the students have basically, and we had some administrative directorship with Michelle Young, have kept it going and, and, and have served it, served it right, quite well. But simultaneously, I, and along with you guys in our, in our program here, have been promoting sports analytics as a subject matter in its own right. And we've been developing that primarily on the educational side and, and the research side, which is often what you see, of course, at a university, you know, research and education. So we've been writing papers and, and our students have been writing papers. And we've been t- using it as a great ma- ma- way to uh, teach statistics and data science to a growing cadre of students who are interested in doing this. And, of course, uh, competing in competitions. competitions? And I always, I always say, you know, you learn statistics and analytics by doing it. And so these data competitions have been tremendous. And your leading student teams on this has been just right. a great educational right. experience. Right. So we've had the we have, there are a couple opportunities for our students. Uh, um, they participated in the NFL Data Bowl. Um, they produce, participated in, in reproducible research competitions. They've been submitting their work uh, to conferences. And we hope to see much more of that going forward. But the world of sports has really changed in the way it has embraced analytics that you couldn't have imagined 10 years ago that this would be a sort of a foundational aspect of sports. So here at the Wharton School, we're doing actually two things with sports analytics. We are using, we are using, we are using sports as a way to teach statistics, and that is what I've been doing, in fact, leading that charge. So we're using sports as a, just a terrific way to, to educate our students in the fundamentals of data analysis. And who, what could go wrong there? And one of the difficulties we have with teaching statistics is that you need data, and data has a context. And when you put it in the context of sports, it's, it's, it's readily assimilated and learned, and you can get really close to the edge of, of doing valuable contributions. Yeah, that's what I always joke with people about. I could take the same data sets you're using uh, in, your spo- in the sports analytics field, put different labels on them, and the interest would drop a 1,000%. That's it's right. just all of a sudden, because you know, most of us, not everybody, but most people grow up either watching sports, playing sports, talking about sports, reading about sports. It's hard in the world today not to know something about sports. It's the most wonderful vehicle, especially when you think about not, as you know, not just for 18 to 20-year-old college students, but you've been running high school programs, Absolutely. and there the interest is infinite. Off the charts. Off the charts. And it's a way to teach them data science and, and statistical analysis and computing in a milieu that is extremely entertaining. And that's, you know, one of the things we think about as educators, how do you get people interested? And getting people interested in, in data just in the abstract is a lot harder when you, when you do it in the abstract, but when you bring on something, a topic that people love and enjoy and know something about, it's, a, it's very effective. So what we're hoping to do with, with, with this WISBY program is continue the initiatives we've been doing with business sports business, but also do two things. So bring analytics to the teams, to the community. We want to we wanna take our you know, elite knowledge of statistics and computing and modern data science to our students, but also to the, the community of people who, are, who use uh, sports in, in their uh, analytics in their work, but also let sports come into our education and our research and use that as a background for and a, and a method for teaching statistics. Well, the reason why I've never Never been more certain about anything we've ever started at the Wharton School. And by the way, uh, just for those who know, Wasabi is under a broader umbrella of analytics at Wharton, which I run here as vice dean. The reason I'm so convinced is students follow the jobs. And there are so many jobs available, not just in sports, but But people trained in data science, the kinds of analyses you're doing with people in sports, if you're at Facebook, 
you're at Amazon, if you're now working for a private equity firm, these are exactly the kind of analyses I'm seeing. And so why not learn it in a fun educational environment? And then you can work in any job. You, you know, Eric, the, the, the proof is in the pudding. If you just look right. at what our students have done, they've, they've, the they've, they've, they've mastered sports analytics or contributed in a way. And then the next thing you know, they are littered in job offers from Facebook, from Google, from private equity. And because everybody wants skills in data science. And what better place to demonstrate that you have those skills in a sports environment? And that allows employers to know that you're actually capable because you've done something. It's one of the greatest lines. You know, Sam Mondry Cohen was really my first sort of analytics student here at, here at Penn over 10 years ago. You know, we, we didn't actually, I don't think we even talked about it on the air, but he, he of course, was he's now the assistant general manager of the Nationals and they're, of course, the world champions. I think he's flashed his ring he's and fl- I think he, you've, at, at, at Adi Weiner, you've I, tweeted about I, it. I've some. tweeted about it. But one of the things, he's come and spoke to our students. He's been to Moneyball Academy and he's, and the great advice he's often give to our students to, 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 to get jobs in the future is do the job before you have it. Now, you're not going to do private equity before you have it. That's not possible. You can't work for Facebook before you work for Facebook. But when it comes to sports analytics, great if, advice. You, if you think about what all these people that are, are, we interview on our show constantly, they began almost as a hobby. For free. For yeah, free. They were just doing it. Doing their stuff. And what our right. students are learning is that you can demonstrate mastery of data analysis using sports and then get jobs in other areas. Almost, It's almost an immediate cash in. And the point that's changed in the, you know, we're the exact same age. The point that's changed in the 20 plus years since we graduated with our PhDs was when you used to work on sports, people would look at you like, why are you working on these toy little problems? That's right. But now people get that it doesn't matter, that even if your area that you've done analytics in sports, you can do analytics in X, fill in X, and that's changed. That has changed, although I will say that there's still some variety and diversity on that score, and I believe that I think the modern and more astute departments and statisticians are recognizing that, and I think the ones that are going to be left behind are still thinking sort of poorly in that Well, direction. either way, on the next, uh, next obviously, uh, given Adi and my relation to Wasabi, Adi running it, me being under the parent umbrella, you'll be hearing you a lot it, more about it. You run it indirectly, right? Yeah, very indirectly, but <laughs> yeah. you'll be hearing a lot more about it here on Wharton Moneyball. So let's do a, a slight change. Let's talk about a sport we haven't spent much time talking about so far, which is the NBA. So let me continue to repeat, and then I'd just like a reaction to it. Let me continue, and it it builds off something you talked about recruiting, but now I'll call it super teams. So let me say the following stats again that I've talked about every week for the last five weeks on Morton Moneyball. If you imagine flipping coins, let's say a basketball game's a coin flip, let's pretend for the moment it's a 50-50 coin, you would expect a distribution with a lot of mass in the center, not as much in the tails, Kind of like a normal distribution, like a bell-shaped curve. Yep. Well, let me tell you the distribution we currently have in the NBA. We have 11 teams with a greater than 600 winning percentage, meaning they're going to forecast above 50 wins. We have 11 teams with less than a 400 winning percentage. So that means they're forecasted 30 wins essentially or less. And we only have eight teams in the 400 to 600 range. So if you'd like, the tails are heavier than the center of the distribution. Yeah, we have a U-shape. So what are you making about all of this? What are you making of the fact that we have two teams right now that are 21 and 3? Do you recognize, even in the course of our one and a half hours of our two-hour show, that we are pointing out a commonality in baseball, their super teams, 
in football, where we have a potentially 12 and 4 Seattle team, I think that we were talking, or is it the Vikings that might come in in sixth place or seventh place, whatever? We have, we have super teams. Yeah, they might be 12 and 4 in sixth place and in sorry, the sorry, NFC. Tw- super football, basketball, and baseball are developing the same phenomenon of this massive. U-shaped distribution, and and the question is, why all three of them doing this? Is what is the commonality that's causing this? I'm not sure I know the answer. Well, I would imagine, you know, part of it in basketball is again, which teams have money. I would say, in some sense, what's interesting about that is that also, um, it takes one superstar to attract other great players. So, if I had told you, for example. You know, Miami Heat, I mean, obviously Miami's a nice place to live, but I don't know that most people would have thought of Miami as a soup team. What happened? LeBron James went there. Obviously, Dwayne Wade was there. They convinced Chris Bosh to go there, so now they have a super team. And so you look around to various places, and that's what's happening. You're just seeing, you know, in some sense, people want to follow the one star. You may, By the way, here's another team we haven't even talked about, which, by the way, sneakily is, is in that middle zone, but... The Nets. See, this is a team I tell people to watch out for in the East because they're, remember, right now they're 13 and 10. Kyrie Irving has not even really playing. He's been injured. I don't want to say God forbid, but let's imagine Kevin Durant, who's on the Nets, actually comes back this season. Now, they're saying he's probably out all of the season. I don't know. Ten games left in the season. The Nets are in the playoff hunt. Kevin Durant comes back. Well, Wow. That, that would shift the balance of power, in my view, in the East dramatically. So I think what's happening is I think we better get used to the Bucks and the Lakers on one side and the awful New York Knicks in this year, shockingly, the bad Golden State Warriors. Mm-hmm. We better expect a lot of 60-plus win teams and a bunch of 20-minus win teams. So do you think that the commonality across the sports is caused by this sort of boom-and-bust cycle of yes. bu- building building? And then tanking, and then and sitting at the top. That, but they never used to do this before. So, the, the, is it analytics that has caused this? Did, I, did I, we? Did statistics show teams that this is the way to championships? I think that's part of it. But I think what's interesting is is that the teams that are you know what's happening is the superstars though that are being recruited by these teams. It's after a few years of play. So I'm not convinced. Like analytics is helping in some sense. Me not. It's helping me draft better. But I'm not sure that like what's creating the super teams isn't so much the draft. It's, okay, now the player's been out three or four years. I'm now going to hire that person yep. away from some other team. Like you see right now, the Clippers. The Clippers didn't draft Kawhi Leonard. The Clippers didn't draft Paul George. They were able to, they were able to watch them for four or five years, and then they were able to scoop them up because of the money in the big market franchise. I just think what's going on in the NBA is crazy. The other thing, this stat we were talking about at the break, we have three teams in the Eastern Conference that are actually undefeated yep. at home. And by the way, this isn't five games. This is 12 or 13 games. Doesn't that shock you? It does. It also reminds everyone the importance of home field advantage in basketball, which is it's just enormous. Well, again, when I look at the NBA, there's other teams that also shock me. Here's another team I was very surprised about. If I had told you without looking at the piece of paper, What's the Miami Heat's record this year? They've played oh. 24 games. Oh, it, it, I would never have thought this. I, I, I noticed they're very good. They're 18 and 6. <laughs> yeah, very good. Or they're, it's either they're very good or, again, they maybe 18 and t- 6 yeah. isn't what we used to think it is. Maybe it's not that great a, a situation right, anymore. With a U-shaped distribution, you just get lucky with the middle teams and feast on the weak ones, and there you are at 18 and 6. 
Well, either way, I think the NBA is, is going to be very, very interesting this season. Um, the good news is... You mean in the playoffs? I think it's going to be very interesting in the, playoffs. in the playoffs. Because when I look at the Eastern Conference, I, I think of at least four teams that can win it. I think the Celtics can win the East. I think the Sixers can win the East. I'm going to say the Raptors, although I'm not as convinced. And I think the Bucks certainly can win the East. And I don't think the Heat can win the East. But there's at least four teams. In the West, you'd have to say the Lakers, the Clippers. Clippers. Yep. Probably the Rockets have to be in there. Maybe the Mavericks are in there. There's probably three or four. Either way, there's seven or eight teams that could all win the NBA this yep. year. I think it's very interesting. Absolutely. The last topic I want to talk about before we go to our Moneyball matchups is there's actually, I don't know if it's big or not, there's a semi-big thing happening in golf this week. Matter of fact, it starts today because there's a you know, 13-hour or 14-hour time difference or probably 15 or 16-hour time difference to Melbourne, Australia, which is the President's Cup Golf. Now, what's interesting about what's going on in golf um, is that Tiger Woods is the first playing captain of the President's Cup for, I think, the last 20 years or something, some large number of years. This might be, on paper, one of the greatest mismatches in history. And here's what I mean. Every single player that's on the U.S. team, essentially, maybe one's 21, is in the top 20 of the world. There's 12 players. 12 of them in the world golf rankings are in the top 20 in the world. Mm -hmm. On the other opponent? team, the opponent team, there's three. Yeah, well, you so, know, it is golf. <laughs> well, so that's what I wanted to ask you. I was going to ask you, like, if this were basketball and I said, I'm going to uh, take... The game's over. The game's over. Yeah. Matter of fact, don't even play don't the even game. Bother. Don't even or play Or tennis, the, forget about right, it. Right, or tennis, don't even play the <laughs> that's match. That's right, game's over. So... But it's golf. So what, you It's kind of like baseball, you know? It could anything. It's still going to be fun. Well, lots me, of randomness. Let me ask you a question about whether about the following for randomness and design. So, for those people that don't follow, every match. So, let me say it's head-on-head -head matches, mm -hmm. and every match is worth a point. There are thirty of these matches, so obviously you need fifteen and a half to win. But I want to tell you something about the design. So today, all of the matches, it's two players for the U.S., two players for the international team, but it's what's called four ball. Everybody right, plays right. their ball. Mm -hmm their own ball, and the best score on the hole for your team is about, is if you win, you win the hole, if your best score of your two players is better than the best score of their two players, or you tie the hole. So how do you think, let me ask a question, if, obviously, if you're the weaker team, this has to help you. Of course, you play variance. Exactly. It's, I mean, listen, to, extreme events are, are, are caused by, are, 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 the probability of an extreme event is driven typically by two parameters, the mean and the variance. Yep. But the variance is something you can control. The mean is something you're going to have a hard time doing. I mean, obviously, you can usually give up mean for higher variance. And if you're a weaker team, you dial up the variance, and you can make this more of a coin toss. Well, it's also a different thing. I'd like to ask your thought about this. So what you're actually looking at for the four ball is the distribution of the maximum. That's right. And so, or the minimum, if you'd like. You want the minimum score. The distribution of the minimum score what do you think will happen if you're the weaker team? Do you have one player you go, listen, Adi, you play it safe, make it an 80% chance you get a par on the hole. I'll be the risk-taking guy. The worst we're going to do is a par. 
I'll go for the high-risk birdie attempt. You go for the safe attempt. Doesn't that... Do they do it in sequence? You get to see what the person did ahead of you before you do the... Well, you play in order like you normally do in golf. Farthest from the hole goes first. And so... But yes, you can even imagine off the tee. Adi Weiner goes for the big club, tries right. to drive it 350 off the tee. He drives it into the woods. Okay. Well, now the second you do, player yeah. all of a sudden... You do so, strategy. No, no. Yeah, so my comment is, doesn't this adaptive strategy also maybe distort in a good sense? It brings up the bottom because not that you, you have more players, but in some sense, you can, you know, you're, you're watching and observing the data, you know. Uh, it's a, it's very difficult, and I actually I think it makes it very entertaining. And I think that even though it's the the U.S. team is on paper much better, it's going to be fun to watch. Well, that's enough for golf. This is the NFL season, and so let's go to our Moneyball matchups. Moneyball matchups. Well, Swati, since I'm seeing in this seat, and I always run our Moneyball matchup, I can go to you. Um, which game has caught your eye this week in the NFL? Obviously, as we're getting down to the last three games of the season, every week is crucial. Well, of course, as a as an Eagles fan, I'm I'm rooting for the Eagles. They're, this should be an easy one for them against the Redskins. No, no, no. Who knows? Right? <laughs> That's the problem with 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 the Eagles. But I'm definitely taking them as the uh, in their my money ball matchup. And I'm, and my if I had to have a follow up, it would be the Cowboys. I'm rooting against them. Well, yeah. So, by the way, let me just say, by the way, Cowboys have an extraordinarily difficult game because it seems yeah. like the Rams have actually figured out something. Something, and they look much better. I just want to be clear again for our fans out here, and they know I'm a Buccaneers fan. This is the Rams team that the that I was at the game. The Buccaneers dropped 55 on. Let's just be clear. We're yep. talking about the same Rams team, but they seem to have figured out something, and that looks like an extremely uh, interesting and difficult game. Um for me, there's a bunch of interesting games this week. I'll start with one that a lot of people aren't talking about, but could have big playoff implications, which is Buffalo at Pittsburgh. So, you know, a lot of people talk about Pittsburgh this year and the job that their coach Mike Tomlin has done as being one of the great coaching jobs in the history of the NFL. Obviously, early in the season, Ben Roethlisberger, their star quarterback, got injured. Obviously, their running back, James Conner, has gotten injured there. Well, originally, they had Antonio Brown preseason. They, they traded him or got rid of him. Uh, Juju Smith-Schuster, their number one receiver. So if I had told you a team loses its starting quarterback, a star quarterback, a star running back, and a star receiver, and that team is still right now in the playoffs, you'd, you'd say— You'd be shocked. You'd be shocked. Yeah. So it, I'm not— I'm Who not, are you picking? That's a good question. I'm not buying the Bills. I don't think the Bills' offense is going to do enough against the Steelers' defense. Mm-hmm. I like the Steelers in that game, and it's a it's a huge game because the Steelers, by the way, are barely holding off a few other teams for that last playoff. I, I spot. will point out, looking at the the Vegas lines, it is the tightest game among the, all the games, the closest one, minus one and one point five, and the 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 smallest over under at thirty seven. Well, that's what I'm saying. So this is going to be a very low-scoring defensive game. I wouldn't say there's a ton of other marquee games that are actually— No one's paying attention to the Jets versus the Ravens, right? (laughs) That's tomorrow night. No, I think—and by the way, the Ravens are a 14.5-point favorite. We should point out, by the way, that's extraordinarily rare in the NFL when a team is actually a more-than-two-touchdown favorite. More than two touchdowns. It's actually interesting, but it's not even that. Probably makes them only about a seventy-five to eighty eighty percent probability of winning. And I think if you told most people, they would say that's no way. way too low. Way no, too, exactly. low. They, they too say it's low. Way too low. So that's that's kind of interesting. It's as well. an interesting observation because uh, 
you know, I wonder whether there's a betting opportunity there. Well, you and I know we'll be talking about that <laughs> off the air. Yeah. So this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. I'd like to thank my co-host this morning, Professor of Statistics Adi Weiner, and also telling us about Wasabi. Uh, I'd like to thank our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Zach Drapkin. Uh, I'm Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School. Um, between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics. We will see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.